0: Welcome back to Nurturing Financial Freedom. I am John Gay. I'm joined by Alex Cabot and Ed Lambert from Birch Run Financial. Gentlemen, always good to be with you.
1: Great to be here, Jag. Always a pleasure, Jag. The fall is here. There's a little bit of a bite in the air. I, get, I feel like I can wear a sweater at some point soon, so all, all, is, <laughs> all is rosy. I do love how you wax poetic at the beginning of every show, Alex. Well, thanks, Jag. You know, it's the benefits of studying classics in college. What can you do? I always learn learn something
0: every time we talk. So we were talking about stimulus today here, guys, and specifically fiscal and monetary stimulus or stimuli, if you will. We've been hearing these terms since the pandemic started in early 2020. Today, we're gonna talk about what they are, why they've been important in managing the economic fallout from the pandemic, and how they're likely gonna be reduced gradually over time as, I hate to say it, we return to normal. But before we get into all of that, Alex, first, give us a quick update on the capital markets
1: uh, since our last recording on September 15th, today being October 19th. Absolutely, Jag. So according to data compiled through FactSet, from September 15th through October 15th, the S&P 500, as well as the MSCI EFA, so large cap U.S. stocks, as well as international developed market stocks, both took a little bit of a pause, falling 0.1% for the 30 days. Domestic small cap stocks, as measured by the Russell 2000, bucked the trend a bit and rose 1.5% over that time period. And the 10-year Treasury rate increased pretty substantially, actually, from 1.3% all the way up to 1.6%. Now, I should say that that is a dramatic increase, but 1.6% for a 10-year Treasury bond is not high, historically speaking. It's just higher than it was roughly 30 days ago. Overall, a relatively calm 30 days uh, from start to finish, although there was some choppiness uh, throughout that period of time. We ended pretty much where we started off.
0: Fair enough. Thank you for that quick summary and easily digestible as well, Alex. Let's get to our main topic today. Can you explain exactly what is a fiscal stimulus and how the government has employed it so far during the pandemic?
1: I mean, explaining what fiscal stimulus is, is pretty straightforward. And, and earlier, you mentioned that we've we've been hearing about stimulus or stimuli, depending on who you ask, uh, since the start of the pandemic. But in reality, those terms have been around for a very long time. They got very popular back during the financial crisis in uh, 2008 and early 2009. And uh, waxing and waning, tapering, twisting, all of these terms have to do something with stimulus. So it's not unique to the pandemic, but certainly something that we've seen in much greater dollar amounts since the beginning of of the worst of this last year. So the short definition of fiscal stimulus is pretty simple. The government provides fiscal stimulus when it does one of two things, either increases spending or cuts taxes, and it can do both at the same time. So the government... Enacts fiscal stimulus to help try to shore up household demand for goods and services during a recession or during a slowdown in economic activity. And while the recession that we saw last year from COVID 19 was certainly not your garden variety recession, the average household did experience a significant impact economically from the lost wages or the decrease in stock market value or lost jobs, you name it. There was an impact pretty much across the board. The objective of doing so is to shore up those household demand. And when aggregate demand increases, the end goal is to decrease the the depth and the severity of a recession and to promote a stronger recovery. Now, it is Difficult to argue that what we're experiencing now is not a strong recovery, at least economically speaking. I mean, obviously, the fallout from COVID is still going on, but the economy has rebounded. The markets have made new highs, and there's been a lot of response to this stimulus that we've received. A couple points about fiscal stimulus. There's a neat number that you can apply to any act of fiscal stimulus. We call it the fiscal multiplier. Okay. It's a measure of how much bang for your buck you get when enacting some type of fiscal stimulus. An example of something with a high multiplier would be boosting unemployment insurance and tax cuts for the middle class. There's a huge economic boost for a relatively low cost if you do something like that. Uh, Example of a low multiplier, so something where you don't get a lot of bang for your buck, Uh, I'm sorry to say to the high income earners out there, but cutting tax rates for high earners and businesses, unfortunately, that is a low multiplier event. And I'll explain why in a little bit. But that's something that the government and, and Congress has to consider when they enact fiscal stimulus. When they cut taxes, when they increase spending, they have to figure out how much bang for their buck are they going to get for the cost. And by and large, most of the stimuli enacted over the last year and a half have been quite effective, as we've seen. So going down that list of what did we actually do in terms of fiscal stimulus. So according to the International Monetary Fund, U.S. Congress implemented five specific fiscal stimulus measures from the beginning of the pandemic until now. The first one was Relatively speaking, quite small. It was a mere two hundred billion dollars, and that was the Coronavirus Preparedness and Response Supplemental Appropriation Act. Say that five times fast.
0: It also, seemed bigger at the time than it does now in hindsight.
1: Yes, uh, two hundred billion at the time was a pretty significant amount. It wasn't until about a month and a half or so later, at the end of April, where they signed the CARES Act, and that was a whopping two point three trillion dollar fiscal stimulus measure. In addition to that, the $483 billion Paycheck Protection Program and Healthcare Enhancement Act came about shortly thereafter. Uh, A part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 was the $868 billion coronavirus relief and government funding bill, and the American Rescue Plan, which is now in the works, is another $1.8 trillion on top of everything else. When we add these all up, I can't count that high. So it's a pretty big number. You can do the math on your own. I don't even think my calculator goes that high. It is a significant commitment of of dollars that the United States government has made to helping us through the worst of this pandemic. So that's the question I get quite frequently, or this rather is the question I get quite frequently, is how do we get back to normal? What does normal look like? And I hate that term, like yeah. get back to normal. Um, we've been hearing it for so long, I think it's lost all meaning to us. But I will say this, returning to normal, quote unquote, whatever that means, it, it will be challenging. Our economy's gotten used to spending without regard for the consequences. Uh, and if you or average, you know, the average household out there spent money like the government spent money relative to how much money that they bring in, they would run into some financial trouble at some point in the not-too-distant future. (laughs) Yes. Now, the government has the advantage of, A, being able to tax their citizens effectively as as much as they choose, and, B, they can print their own money. Uh, Ed's going to talk about that later on. There's very little likelihood of a a serious problem coming up in the short term, but longer term, we have to kind of figure out where this leads trajectory-wise. So the response of the government likely wasn't wrong, We were going through something last year that we hadn't seen in in over a century, uh, at least in terms of uh, the the sheer impact of something like a pandemic. I mean, the last significant pandemic we had in the United States was the the influenza pandemic uh, back in the 19-teens. Right. So it it had been over 100 years since we had seen something like that. and. The impact of the fiscal stimulus, as well as what Ed's going to talk about in a little while, was incredible. It was very quick. Markets rebounded. The economy rebounded. The jobs came back. The end result was good. We just have to acknowledge, though, the fact that the economy is not going to need to be or should be on life support forever. Uh, That's one concern that that I've had, is that we get so addicted to all of this stimulus that we can't function without it. And when I say we, I mean the United States economy. Right. So how do we pay for all this? Well, it's likely that at some point in the not-too-distant future, taxes are going to have to go up. And that rarely makes people happy when they hear that taxes are going to increase. But the majority of the proposals that I've seen and none of these have gone much beyond a committee yet, but most of the proposals I've seen, it is unlikely that the majority of Americans will feel too much of a pinch come April 15th. The corporate tax rate, taxes on the highest earners in the country, those are what's in the crosshairs right now. There's a George Bush read my lips joke in here somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there, I actually remember when he said that. Um, Now, In fairness to George H.W. Bush, he did not realize that we were going to have to get involved in a conflict in the Middle East, uh, in Kuwait and Iraq. Fair. In 1991, I think it was. 91, yeah. So the the catch-22, though, of raising taxes to pay for fiscal stimulus, if you raise taxes too much, it can have a significant negative impact on economic growth, as businesses are forced to reduce expenses to maintain profitability. If you raise taxes too much on individuals, it can have a negative impact as people will spend less in response to a greater tax burden. And if you've ever taken a, probably a macroeconomics class, you might remember the formula for calculating GDP of the United States. And one of the largest components of GDP is consumer spending. Roughly 70% or so of GDP is just consumer spending. So if the average American has fewer dollars in their pocket, they're going to spend fewer dollars, that's going to have an impact on the economy, and it'll slow it down. Okay, so there is an advantage, and again, I don't like to say this because people may listen listening to this podcast who are in the highest tax bracket, and, and that's okay. It's, it's good to uh, good to have variety. There is something of an advantage of raising taxes on the highest income earners. And the advantage is this. Rarely do high income earners spend everything that they earn their taxes go up, the only thing that's impacted is the amount they save. And that does not have a huge impact on economic growth. Their consumption will not change, but their savings will. The impact on economic growth is a lot more muted than it would be if you were increasing taxes uh, to the point where they could no longer consume as much.
0: That makes sense, Alex. I'm thinking of somebody who might be in that higher, highest tax bracket, you know, cars and microchip shortages aside, they may not downgrade from a $100,000 car to a $15,000 car. They just might have less in their savings that they're putting away every month.
1: They're not going to skip vacations or skip going out to eat. They're still going to go out and do things they want to do, um, maybe with some impact, but it'll be much less. If you increase taxes on the middle class, you know, someone earning between, say, fifty dollars and $150,000 a year, the impact on consumer sentiment and consumer spending could be problematic for the economy. Um, There was a study done by J.P. Morgan a few years ago that found that the average top 1% earner spends something like 60 to 65% of net take-home pay. So if their taxes go up, they'll they'll still have plenty of disposable income. The average middle-income family in the United States spends almost exactly 100% of everything they take home. Right. So all of that money goes back into the economy. If their taxes go up, that decreases the amount they're going to spend. That has a big impact on economic growth. So I don't know what the solution is. I'm not a politician. It's not my job to figure out policy decisions. I will say this. By and large, I believe that the powers that be know where the tax rates need to go up, where they should go up, and how to implement that. They know that raising taxes too much on the middle class will have an impact on the economy. They know that raising taxes too much on businesses will have an impact on profitability and the stock market and GDP. They know all of these things. Whether or not Congress is wise enough to use that knowledge, well, that's another story. (laughs) But nevertheless, we've gone through an extremely challenging time economically. And obviously in the public health arena, that's probably the most significant impact that we've seen. The fiscal stimulus so far has been very effective, uh, in addition to what Ed's going to uh, discuss in a moment. But um, for us, it's a matter of getting to the point where we realize we no longer need this and figuring out a reasonable way to help get this budget balanced at some point in the next couple of years, hopefully without having a negative impact on economic growth. That's where we stand now. I think that's a great way to sum all of that up, Alex. In talking about fiscal stimulus, and I
0: I think you kind of did the big yellow for dummies book explanation, which I can tell you from personally, I appreciate that. In terms of the fiscal stimulus, that covers that piece of the podcast. The other piece of our podcast today is monetary stimulus. So, Ed, let me turn to you. Walk us through monetary stimulus and how the government's used it over the last uh, year and a half or so.
2: Sure, Jag. So, monetary stimulus is essentially economic stimulus created by the Federal Reserve Bank's management of interest rates as well as the money supply. And since this crisis started in early 2020, there's been two primary ways that the Fed stimulated growth. Uh, The first is by managing the Fed fund's interest rate. And this is an overnight lending rate that the Fed controls directly, and it determines how much interest will be paid on short-term deposits like savings accounts and money markets. In early March of 2020, the Fed cut this rate from approximately one and a half percent to essentially zero in a matter of roughly two weeks. And what cutting this rate did was decentivize the hoarding of cash savings. If we all hoarded our money, then the economy would collapse. Imagine what would happen, Jag, if, you know, all of us got scared and stuck all of our money in the bank. There, there would be no economy, right? Yeah. I was just thinking that people panicking when the pandemic started and, you know, whether it was the bank or their mattress or whatever, but, you know, just sitting on it. That's exactly right. And at the time it was criticized because it had very little short-term effect because people were panicked anyway. They didn't care if the bank paid them one and a half percent or the bank paid them nothing. They were hoarding cash, right? But- cutting the Fed funds rate has really helped growth after that initial shutdown in the first couple months of the pandemic itself. And think about it. As of today, interest rates are pretty much close to zero still on cash deposits, right? So people like you and I are much more likely to do something with our money, like invest in stocks or buy things, than we would if savings accounts paid us a reasonable rate of interest, right? So, This activity stimulates economic growth, which has really been the Fed's goal. And the second way that the Fed's employed monetary stimulus is through a program that became very popular during the 2008 crisis called quantitative easing. Do you remember that term? I remember that term from previous episodes of the podcast. Yes. Okay. Okay. So monetary easing is essentially a fancy way of saying that the Fed is printing money to buy bonds, creating money. Uh, They buy assets with the created money that supports prices and keeps interest rates down. Remember in our last episode, we talked about bond prices and interest rates move uh, inversely to each other? Yep. So if the Fed's buying bonds with money that they're creating, it's going to push down interest rates. And right now they're buying $120 billion a month worth of treasury and mortgage-backed bonds. So- The treasury bond purchases, which make up 80 billion of the 120, ensure that there's adequate demand for government bonds to keep rates low, particularly as Congress has been deploying extra deficit spending, right? You know, when you have fiscal stimulus, what you're doing is you're expanding your deficit. Well, you're issuing government bonds. If the Fed's buying those bonds, you're artificially keeping demand high so that rates don't increase. And right now, like Alex mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, ten-year Treasuries pay roughly 1.6%. Prior to the pandemic and all of this, you know, extra deficit spending, they paid around 1.8%. And through much of 2020, uh, the ten-year rate was below one percent. And the mortgage bond purchases, which add up to 40 billion of the 120 billion each month directly push down mortgage rates. And much of the housing boom that we've seen since early in the pandemic has really been fueled by these low borrowing costs. This has really helped to build up the net worth of many Americans and give them confidence. Right, And the low interest rates have also supported the recovery in the stock market and really a lot of growth beyond when the market reached its previous highs last summer. And through much of the pandemic, and really still to an extent, Investors are dealing with a stock market phenomenon some are calling TINA, T-I-N-A, which stands for there is no alternative. Investors are much more likely to buy stocks with excess money when they can't earn a reasonable rate of interest in the bank or in treasury bonds. TINA is no relation to Karen, right? No, absolutely not. Tina is not related to Karen. Okay, just want to make sure they were separate entities. Okay. So now let's take a look at what low interest rates have done for people like us. Pushed up the value of our homes. Pushed up the value of our stock portfolios. This creates what economists call a wealth effect that has done wonders to support the economy. When people's investment accounts grow, their homes are worth more they feel pretty good about their financial situation. Sure. People who feel good about their financial situation, what do they do, Jag? They spend, spend money. money. Yeah. Right? When people spend money, corporate revenues increase. When corporate revenues increase, stock prices grow further. Companies hire people. And right now, we have a record number of job openings in the country. And you know that's what's needed for an economy to recover from this type of shock. Economic growth is a collective mindset. If people believe there's going to be growth, they will act in a way that will create growth. They will spend and they will hire. It's all about confidence. And when your home's worth more, when your investments are worth more, that's more likely to fuel further growth, okay? So the question now, just like Alex addressed with fiscal stimulus, is how and when does this monetary stimulus end? can't print money forever right you can't hold interest rates you know at, at zero forever on bank deposits if you were to do those things then eventually you're going to have stubbornly high inflation which is very counterproductive to economic growth and at this point it appears that the Fed is going to take a very measured approach to pulling back on the stimulus mm-hmm. so their first step is likely to be, a gradual tapering of these $120 billion per month of bond purchases. Most economists that we follow think they'll start that later this year, gradually buy less each month until the middle of 2022, which should allow treasury bond yields and mortgage rates to rise slowly. That's the hope, at least. Yep. We don't want any fast increases in rates, as that could really suppress economic activity. And regarding the Fed funds rate, which affects, again, our bank accounts and short-term deposits, the Fed is currently projecting that they can begin to raise that rate sometime late in 2022. And the key word here, withdrawing stimulus, whether it be fiscal or monetary, is gradual. When we need to stimulate the economy in a crisis like last year, we want to shock it. You yeah. know, remember the old term shock and all." Well, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's exactly what Congress and the Fed did last March and through the darkest days of the pandemic. When we want to take away stimulus, we don't want to shock anything. We want to do things very gradually because if we were to create a negative economic shock, that could cause what economists call a double dip recession. Double-dip recession is when you come out of a recession and something happens, like you withdraw stimulus too quickly, and the economy's not ready to really stand on its own two feet, and you go back into the recession.
0: It's almost like ripping the Band-Aid off, and they really don't want to do that.
2: When it's not time yet. Right. Before the wound is healed, right? Yeah. And, you know, Congress is aware of this with spending. Uh, you know, the Fed is keenly aware of it. And remember, you know, the Federal Reserve is designed to be apolitical. So they're not a political organization. These are just some of the best economists uh, in the country that make these decisions. So they know that it has to be gradual. The one challenge with monetary stimulus is how stubborn this inflation proves to be may very well determine you know, how slowly they can take the Band-Aid off. So if supply chains start to improve some over the next six months or so, and inflation gradually starts to taper off, as we all hope, then the Fed can be very slow and measured in their withdrawal of, of that monetary stimulus. And just like Alex mentioned about fiscal stimulus, in our view, in our discussions that we have about, you know, the darkest days of the pandemic, particularly that first month, Both Alex and I feel that the extremely aggressive action taken by both the Fed and Congress really helped to restore confidence in the economy as well as the markets, and helped to avert a prolonged, very serious recession. Um, There are side effects from these programs, you know, from the monetary stimulus. We might be looking at at some inflation from all the fiscal stimulus. Certainly, is added to the national debt, but they have been quite effective in reaching their uh, objectives thus far, which is to keep the economy out of the gutter and allow it to recover.
0: I think you guys have done a good job explaining both fiscal and monetary stimulus. And the thing that really sticks with me is what you said a moment ago, Ed, about shock and awe. When stuff goes bad, unpredictably and very quickly, this black swan event of the pandemic that we had in March of 2020, Mm -hmm. you have to act fast. But then when it comes to bringing things back to, again, I hate to use the word, but normalcy, you have to act very slow and measured.
2: Yes, yes. And think back to how shocked everybody was with what was going on in the world in the stock market last March, right? And, you know, there was an interview, I, one of the financial networks did with Fed Chairman Jay Powell at the time. And there was a lot of concern about what the Fed could actually do and how much would they do. Was this crisis too big for Congress and the Fed to get us out of, essentially, economically. And Jay Powell said very confidently when asked, what if the Fed runs out of bullets? He said, the Fed never runs out of bullets. (laughs) And, you know, that interview, I think, helped restore a lot of confidence in the markets. And then, you know, when the CARES Act finally came together and we saw that it was going to be $2.2 trillion, I think U.S. investors, consumers, everybody knew that Congress and the Fed were willing to go big, very big, and that's exactly what was needed.
0: Well, Alex, Ed, thank you as always. Really interesting stuff as far as breaking this all down in terms that I don't want to say that our listeners can understand because I don't want to insult anybody, but you've broken it down in terms that I can understand, and I certainly appreciate that. If somebody wants to come talk to you about these or anything else related to their financial future, their retirement planning, anything of the sort, what are the best ways to find you at Bertrand Financial?
1: I will couch this this, uh, plug by saying it is rare where somebody wants to call us and talk to us specifically about fiscal (laughs) and monetary stimulus. You know, I was thinking that as I
0: said it, but thank you for clarifying.
1: But if you have questions about how the fiscal and the monetary stimulus that we've seen over the last 18 months may affect your portfolio and your financial plan the best way to find us is on our website www.birchrunfinancial.com you can email us in our general box which is info info at birchrunfinancial.com or if you prefer the old-fashioned way you can always give us a call at the office 484. 484- We're always happy to wax poetic about fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, or anything else that may relate to your financial plan or your portfolio. Love to talk to you if you get a chance. You did a much
0: better plug than I did. Thank you, Alex Cavett, Ed Lambert from Bertrand Financial. will talk to you next month. Thanks, Jag. Thanks, Jag. We'll talk to you soon. Any opinions are those of Ed Lambert and Alex Cavett, not necessarily those of RGFS or Raymond James. The information contained in this report does not report to be a complete description of the securities, markets, or developments referred to in this material. There is no assurance any of the trends mentioned will continue or forecasts will occur. The information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but Raymond James is not guaranteed foregoing material is accurate or complete. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision and is not constitute a recommendation. The S&P 500 is an unmanaged index of 500 widely held stocks that is generally considered to be representative of the U.S. stock market. It's not possible to directly invest in an index. The Russell 2000 Index measures the performance of the 2,000 smallest companies in the Russell 3000 Index. The MSCI IFA, Europe, Australasia, and the Far East is a free float adjusted market capitalization index that is designed to measure the developed market equity performance of excluding the United States and Canada. The IFA consists of the country indices of 22 developed nations. The U.S. government bonds and treasury bills are guaranteed by the U.S. government, and if held to maturity, offer a fixed rate return and guaranteed principal value. The example throughout this material is for illustrative purposes only. Raymond James does not provide tax or legal services. Please discuss these matters with the appropriate professional. Diversification and asset allocation do not ensure a profit or protect against a loss. Keep in mind that not all asset classes mentioned are suitable for all clients. Rebalancing a non-retirement account could be a taxable event that may increase your tax liability. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. Securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services Inc., member FINRA/SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Inc. Virtual Financial is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services. Virtual Financial is located at 595 East for Road, Suite 360, Wayne, Pennsylvania 19087, and can be reached at 484-395-2190.